Well, we're going to take our Bibles and turn to the New Testament. This morning, we're going to read from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, if you're using one of our blue pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 944. Page 944. Uh, Richard's going to come later on and speak to us from Romans 8, 14 to 17, but we'll pick up our reading from verse 1 and read down to verse 17. So Romans 8, beginning at verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 17, page 944 of the Pew Bibles. And as we read, we're conscious that this is God's living word to us. We can trust it, we can rely on it, and we can know that he will speak to us through it. So Romans 8, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, con- he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let me add my good morning or afternoon as it is to you all. It's good to be with you. Thank you, Stephen, for your welcome and for everybody here. Uh, If I could ask you just to turn with me to Romans 8 once again, just good to have it in front of you. And I'm going to emphasize uh, just a couple of the verses that are in there. Um, By the way, it's very distracting. I can see myself on the screen. I just want to make sure I look good for the cameras. Um, But it is a delight to be here. You might not be able to tell from my accent, but I am a Balamina man, born and bred, uh, born in the Braid Valley. Now, why do I not sound like it? I've ended up living most of my life now in County Down, and the County Down people don't speak the angelic tongue of Ulster Scots, and so I've had to drop it, but here's hoping that talking to you brings it back, and I can freak them out when I go back home. We're going to pick up the reading from Romans 8 and verse 14. 
And here is the word of God for us today. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What are you scared of, I wonder? You Google the sort of the top 10 fears that people have and you get words like arachnophobia coming up. Anybody know what that is? Maybe you have a very pointed fear of arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, our eight-legged friends, which are getting bigger and bigger and bigger this time of year. You're having to use an even bigger cricket bat than you would have had to use at the beginning of uh, the summer with them. Maybe you've got a fear of heights. Maybe you don't like going up onto ladders. Maybe they kind of freak you out, the wobbling back and forth and the ground sort of zooms up and down in front of you. You wonder when is it that you're going to perish and meet your end. Maybe you have a fear of water. Maybe you can't watch Titanic because you feel the water coming through the TV screen at you and you wonder, yes, this is why I don't go on boats. This is why I live in Buckna, which is landlocked. Glenarm is just far enough away for me not to have to see the sea. And in all of this, we think there are lots of things that we are afraid of. I went through the top 10 list, and I'm relatively certain that I had to go and see a doctor afterwards, because I think I have all 10 of them. And then some. I have some unusual fears. I have some irrational fears. I have what is called brontophobia. Stephen will attest to this. This is a fear of thunder and lightning, which is just not something that you want to openly confess to a large room of people. But it's true. When the thunder rumbles and the lightning flashes in the sky, there's something in my heart that stops and a pit in my stomach opens up, and I can still hear my mum's voice telling me, it's all right, son, God's just moving his furniture about upstairs. But that never worked. The fear of something that was so powerful, so far out of my realm of control, absolutely paralyzed me as a child, and I'll never forget being on the Balamoni Road and cycling home as fast as I could as the flashes of lightning got ever closer to the rumbles of the thunder, and I thought, this is it. This is the end, and my front door never looks so sweet. We all have fears, whether like me you want to publicly admit them or not, we have things that creep us out. We still have monsters under the bed at night, and we have things that deep within our souls worry us and trouble us. And Paul's not writing to people here to talk to them about their phobias. He's not telling me this morning, Richard, your fear of thunder and lightning is completely irrational, and would you just grow up already, you big kid? He's telling us something else. He's telling us something that we are spiritually all terrified about because we have fears whether we want to confess them out loud or not. We have fears that maybe we're not a real Christian. Maybe this is all a charade in front of me and everybody has bought the lie that I've been selling all my days. That I know the truth about God, that I've heard this since I was in Sunday school and I can quote John 3.16 and I have it on all my coffee cups, but is it written on my heart? Do I really believe that God sent his son into the world to save me? That my sins aren't all forgiven because some of them are so big in my past that there's no way God could possibly forgive that one. 
that God could never accept a sinner like me if he really knew me, if he could see behind the facade that I put in front of everybody else around me, if he knew who I really was, he wouldn't accept me. That when it comes to it, when the thunder and the lightning and everything that terrifies me in this world comes to strike me, that I am left on my own and he will not save me. That's maybe a fear that you have. I've been in pastoral ministry for long enough to know that it's a very real and live fear that a lot of people have. But Paul comes to us today and he tells you, hey, you, yeah, you, have no fear. No fear. Because you, yes, you, are a son of God. That is what he comes to tell you today. That is what this passage is speaking to us today about. That is what Jesus wants us to hear today. You are a son of God. Because here he tells us, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you walk by the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, if you embrace the Holy Spirit, and Paul uses this word led, he's telling us you are a child of God. It's like a child walking down the street, holding onto her father's hand, knowing that he is taking her exactly where she needs to go and she is safe and secure and protected from all harm. And he calls them sons. Now, this is one of those theological categories. We can't kind of move this away and say children of God. This is like, men. we have to deal with being called the bride of Christ, right? So for a moment, we have to think of ourselves as a beautiful bride whenever scripture speaks this way. And ladies, I'm afraid at this point, you have to handle being called sons. So we are all adopted as sons because this is a theological category. This is God telling us something important because in the ancient world, When the son was adopted into the family, he got everything. He got the rights, he got the properties, he got everything. Caesar adopted his son Octavian, but we know him better as Caesar Augustus at the beginning of Luke's gospel, who calls the census. He received everything, an entire empire was his, but he had no biological right to it. He was adopted into the family and claimed everything for his own. In the ancient world, if you couldn't pay a debt, you fell into slavery. But that's not how we are now. We are debtors, yes, but we are debtors not to the flesh that we should be slaves, but that we are debtors to the spirit. And can we pay him? Not a penny, not a cent, not anything that you could pull out of your pocket of any currency in the world would carry any weight with him. We cannot pay him because we have received from him. Think about, I know I'm going to hate saying this out loud, but Christmas is but just round the corner, isn't it? And at that moment on Christmas morning, as you can all sort of look back in your mind, have you ever seen a child open a present and go, wow, I'm so excited, this is so wonderful, and walk up to their parents and say, now how much do I owe you? That's not how this works. God gives us grace. God gives us salvation. God gives us adoption. And we only stand with hands wide open and receive. That's it. That's the beauty of it. It almost feels like a trick, doesn't it? It's a bit of a trap. You feel like there's something I have to do here, right? And he says, no, just receive it. Just receive what I have given to you. And the wonder of this is that we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received instead a spirit of adoption. Some of you today will have walked in here and you might still walk out, but listen carefully, with a spirit of slavery. You feel unworthy of the love of God and so you beat yourself up. 
and you work hard to please God so that he might accept you. But you'll always feel unworthy on some level. The things from your past loom so large on your mind, scared that he's not going to accept you unless you come to him with wounds of your own. Look how much I've suffered for you. Look at the strain I've done for you. Look how much I've served you. Look how much I've done for you. Other people will think of God as a tyrant, the one who is distant and aloof in the clouds, not wanting to look anywhere near you. He makes so many rules, doesn't he? You think, he's so cruel and mean. Look at my life. Look at what he has done to me. You've not experienced this adoption, but instead feel that God is either to be feared or he is to be forgotten. Others again might think that God is a slave master, one who is there to be pleased, one you have to serve, one you have to bleed for, one you have to work for, that it's some sort of karmic slavery. The more I work for him, the more he will give to me. And therefore, I will have more stuff or I will be loved by him. You will never work your way into the love of God. That's just not how he works. But whether you feel God couldn't love you or whether you think he's a tyrant or whether you think he's a slave master, the Bible speaks a very different truth. It says there is no fear for you are a child of God. The best way I can sum this up is to tell you a story that Jesus told. Of course, he tells it much better than I will. A man has two sons and one son says, hey, dad, I wish you were dead and disappears with his inheritance off to a foreign land and spends every single penny of it. And he comes back home. And you know the story because he's sitting eating or think, looking at what the pigs are eating, thinking that looks good. And he walks home saying, I'm done. I'm up with, I'm off with this. Heads back home, is walking back, is preparing a speech. Father, I've sinned against you and against God. And I'm so sorry. And I look, if I could just be your servant. And the father, what do we know about the story? The father's watching the whole time, the road, over the hill, on the horizon, eyes locked onto the horizon, waiting for that speck with that walk, the way his son walks, to come over that hill. And he sees him, and he girds his loins, which is an old-fashioned way of saying he whips his garments around him, and he sprints as fast and as hard as he can up the road to his son. And the son's prepared speech, Father, I've sinned against you and against... He doesn't get a word out because that smack is the sound of the father wrapping his arms around his son. That is the sound of the father welcoming his son home. That is the sound of love, unlimited love falling upon him. He tries the speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And the father turns around and goes, get my son a robe, get my son a ring, kill the fatted calf for tonight we party. And the party begins and the other son comes down and the son says, Father, or doesn't even call him Father, he says, all my days I have slaved for you. I never realized that before. I've, you know, I've read that passage since I was a little tiny boy. And I've sat there all my days and I never realized the older brother comes to the father and says, all my days I have slaved for you. Because that's the kind of relationship he had with his father. He slaved for him. He worked hard, wanting the father's approval, wanting the father to say, well done, wanting the father to do something, but he never realized that he's not a slave. And what does the father say to him? He doesn't go, my slave. He goes, my son, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. It's the son who has the wrong relationship with the father. The father knows this is my son and leaves the son standing outside the party having to make up his mind. Is he going to accept that he is a son and walk into the party and know the father's love? Or is he going to think that he's a slave and go back out into the fields and keep working until one day his father dies and he gets what he actually wants? 
which is the Father's property. So you and I, we have warped probably in our minds and in our hearts the relationship that we have with God. We've turned it into something it's not. We've made it that we slave for him, we work for him, we beat ourselves for him. But in reality, he's turning to you and he's saying, my son, my daughter, I love you. We're uncomfortable with that on some level because we want to go, yeah, I know you do, but let me do this thing for you and then you'll be pleased with me, right? He says, no, forget that. I'm already pleased with you because of what Jesus has done. And we say, yeah, that's great and everything, but I really want you to see everything I've done in my life. I really want to hold up my my Sunday school medals and my BB cup things and my GB cup things and, and I want to tell you how wonderful it all is and how great I am. And he's going to go, yeah, those are nice little trinkets, but I'm not interested in you because of those things. I'm interested in you because of my son. The father calls them a son. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said this about his own conversion. After being a minister for years and going on mission trips to the Native Americans, he was converted and he said he exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son that he had been beating himself over the back to win God's approval. And now he finally realized that in Jesus, he already had everything he could ever want. We've been given a spirit of adoption, brothers and sisters. We are not afraid anymore. We walk forward in faith. And this is the one for whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And we've been brought into this family of God and we're able to say, Father. So if you're like me and you've brought up in the church, you probably remember a song from the 90s that starts off Abba Father. So when you hear Abba Father, you maybe will think of a song or you think of someone whose Christian life is so wonderful, so godly, so pious, that they are the ones who can approach God and say, Abba Father. And you think, wow, I wish I had faith like that, that I could draw close to God to say, Abba Father. Sometimes we think that is reserved for the super holy Christian elite that are able to do anything and everything and quote their Bible backwards. And they are the ones who can approach God in such a way. Is it only whenever I have a warm and fuzzy feeling inside me that I can say, Abba Father? Is it after a week of sin that I can draw close to God and say, Abba Father? Is it that after I have been distant and my Bible is thick layers of dust sitting on top of it that I needed to push away that I can then say, Abba Father? Or do I need to work my way back into his good graces before I ever dare to say, Abba Father? The thing is that that is all wrong. Because the word here is not by whom we pray, by whom we sing, by whom we adore, by whom we cry. And even then, it's a terrible word. This is the word for a woman in labor, crying out. This is the word for Jesus on the cross, crying out. It is finished. This is, uh, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, The child that has been running, playing outside in the garden and has fallen over and has scraped their knee and cannot get up and screams out, Daddy! Right, you've all woken up again, I see. But that is the shout that pierces a wall of concrete through the way, all the way up the stairs to the office where the dad is working and he hears the cry, Daddy! Daddy! And he runs as fast as he can because his child is wounded outside. This is the cry that stops the father from doing what he is doing. And automatically he has only but one thing in the world he's interested in. His child. And he is running 
to her. And when he gets her, does he look at her and say, you fool, what have you done? Or does he get down on the ground and scoop her up in his arms and hold her close in his arms and wipe the tears from her face and tell her that everything is going to be okay? Is that your picture of God? Or do you have to work for his love? Because I'll tell you, the first story is true. Years ago, I lived in Cork, and my housemate, Donal, um, you might remember there was a plane crash. Six people lost their lives at the airport. And I was there. I was unfortunate enough to have to pick him up uh, from the airport. And the thing went over the loudspeaker telling the people who are coming to pick up the people from this flight from Belfast would have come down into the bowels of the airport. And so down I went into a little room that I didn't know they have made in airports where you wait to hear the bad news from the police. And we sat there and I couldn't get a signal on my phone. And eventually I got one and I went out into the corridor and I rang the only person in the world who I knew who could help me. And my dad, 300 miles away. And I rang him. And as soon as I heard his voice, I couldn't speak. And, all, and he suddenly went, sorry, <clears throat> it's never easy to tell this story, but he suddenly says to me, Richard, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Richard, I'm on my way. And the only word I got out was dad. And 300 miles was nothing. And that is what this prayer is. When you are fallen on your knees and you are broken and you cannot go forward and it feels like you are crawling on glass and you look at this, this is not the day where you're going, I feel warm and fuzzy, I feel close to God, I've done my devotions 365 days of the year. This is the day you hear the cancer diagnosis and you go, Dad, where are you? This is the day that the bottom falls out in your life and you fall into a pit that you cannot get out of and you scream, Dad, where are you? And he says, I am right here with you. This can sometimes be the whole prayer. What do non-Christians do when they hear bad news? They say, God, how could you? God, how dare you? God, where are you? But the Christian just says, Father, help me. This is the hope that we have. Therefore, we have no fear of being unworthy in front of him because, good news, your heavenly father loves you. You have no fear of a tyrant living in the sky with thunderbolts in his hand because you have a father who loves you. You have no fear of trying to please a slave master because you have a father who loves you. Look, let me close with this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit is alive within you. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of God is already there. And it is the Spirit in Galatians 4, we're told, that cries out, Abba. And here in Romans, we're told that we cry out, Abba. And is that a contradiction? Not in the slightest. That is telling you that we harmonize with the Holy Spirit when we cry out, Abba. That the two things testify to the same truth. That our assurance of our faith is not reserved for the highly sanctified Christian, 
but is the birthright of the weakest and most oppressed believer. That is the glory that is beheld for us today. The other way of knowing that God is our Father is that we put sin to death as we are adopted into the family. The family traits begin to rub off and they rub off our hard edges and we become more and more like our Father. I look in the mirror and I see myself becoming more like my dad. I got my hair cut. Hopefully you like it. It got, but the guy pulled my hair back like this and I went, oh my goodness, it's my dad. And I was so glad that he brushed it forward and there was still something there. But then I grew this beard to stop looking like my dad and he grew out his. And I, I say he wants to look like me. But there is that thing, isn't it? You look like your father. There are days you speak and you go, oh my goodness, I am turning into my mother. There are days where you say things, hear things, do things. When my granda, my dad, myself and my son are all in the one room, people say it's like looking into the past and the future all at once. And that's a little daunting because I can see past dad to granda and go, oh dear, that's what that's going to look like. No hair at all. And so in that moment, we're looking, but one day people ask the question, will we recognize each other in heaven? Absolutely, 100%. I'll walk up to heaven one day and I will go, Stephen, it's so good to see you. You look just like your father. But I don't mean Danny. I mean Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You look just like your father. And we'll grab each other and go, my goodness, don't you look just like your father? Because as we grow into the spirit, as we grow as Christians, we become less like ourselves and become more like Jesus. My goodness, don't you look just like your father. Let's pick this up at the very end. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provide it, we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This suffering might look like persecution. In some parts of the world, it really does. It might look like denying yourself, putting aside the thing that you want to do in order to serve the Lord. It might look like picking up your cross and following Jesus and going somewhere where you might not want to go. Jesus says it might look like bearing sickness and sorrow. There's an American preacher called Jared Wilson, and he tells a story of his friend called Richard, which caught my eyes because not very often I see my name written down. And he died at the age of 32 of a brain tumour. And reading this hit close to home, obviously because his name is Richard, but also at the time that I read it, I was 32. And so Richard said this, I felt so blessed that God would actually use me at all to attempt to bring him the glory he so deserves. And turned to Jared Wilson and said, why me, brother? Not why is this happening to me, but why would he pick me to show forth his glory in this world in this way? Most of us are going to say, why am I the only one? I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve this. This isn't something that should be put on my shoulder. Why have I been chosen to show God's glory, goodness and sufficiency in the midst of suffering? That's a question that we need to learn to ask more. But Richard was committed to the glory of Jesus. And when the sting of suffering came, he did not become bitter, but knew the sweetness of Jesus all the more of what it meant to be a son. Someone gave Richard a bracelet to wear on his wrist, which said, God has got this. As the treatment and time took their toll, it sat looser and looser on his bones. What did it mean? It meant that God has this too. He's got this illness. It meant and means that God is in control 
that God is using the good and the bad to bring about his glory in this world. And Richard died of his cancer wearing that bracelet. And in the end, God had Richard. That's what the bracelet told everyone when the sermon was preached at the funeral. God has Richard. Change it to your name. Has God got you? I'm sure he does. But if you've got the right vision of who he is in your head, that's where I think we sometimes stumble in our fellowships. He is a good father. He is a loving father. He is not a distant father. He is beside you. He is near you. He is living in you. And he will carry you all the way home. I'm a long-winded preacher, but forgive me an epilogue, if you will. How many of you have the Footprints poem in your house, in your bookmark, at the back of your Bible? I'm going to take it off you, okay? I'm going to make it the worst thing you've ever read, and then I'm going to give it back to you even better, okay? You know the poem. If you don't, two sets of footprints walking down the beach in a dream, and occasionally there's one set of footprints, and the man's life is blazed up on the sky, and he sees on the sky the good things, good times and the bad times. And by the bad times, there's one set of footprints. And he says to Jesus, who's walking beside him, Jesus, why, why is there only one set of footprints during the bad times? Where did you go? And Jesus responds and says, my child, it is not then that I left you, but it is then that I carried you. And that's comforting. But I'm going to take it off you now. It's also awful. Because if he's not carrying me every single day of my life, then where is he? I don't want a God who walks beside me. I want a God whose back I'm on, like a child getting a piggyback from my father through every single day of this life. I don't want a God that I can ever ask, why were you ever beside me? Or where did you go? I want a God that he, I can look back at my life and go, God, where were you every day of my life? And he says, what are you talking about? I carried you every single day of your life. So I don't know where you are, what you're going through, what you've been through. Let me assure you of this. Your heavenly father knows. Your heavenly father knows every single second of it. He has sustained you. He has kept you. He will walk beside you, carrying you, I should say. And he will carry you all the way home. He is the one we look to, call to, trust to. He is our Abba. Let's pray to him together. <coughs> Abba, Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence, that you are a good and loving God, that you, the King of the universe, would welcome such as us into your presence, that we even would dare to draw close to the throne. But then we hear that this is a throne of grace, that the price has been shared, that Jesus has died, that we have been one, that we have been adopted into the family, and now we draw close, not to a throne of a distant king, but to the throne of our Father. Lord, we pray that you will correct our thinking, for we all stray in our minds and mistake you for a character. Help us to know the real you, to read your word and to see you for who you really are. 
to see you by faith and to hold on to you by faith and to trust that you are good always. The good that we hoped you would always be and even more than that still. So Lord, bless us. Show us again that you are the Father who cares. Carry each and every one of us, each and every day of our lives, that we might know that all the steps below us, our feet have never touched this earth, but our Father carries us home. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.